Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, hosted by Mary Shirley and me, Lisa Fine. Today's guest is someone who I've been hoping would join the podcast for a while, and I'm just so happy she's here. Ann Salton is a partner at Miller Shelvier and has a very broad-based practice. She's a native Russian speaker. She's the practice lead for the firm's Europe Caucasus Asia Practice Group, and that one's hard for me to say. And she insists, assists companies and individuals doing business in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, as well as in the U.S. and all over the world. In the U.S., Anne currently serves in a leadership role on an independent monitor team focusing on human resources issues, including harassment and discrimination, and that's on behalf of a regulatory agency in Massachusetts. Recently, Anne was recognized in Who's Who Legal in their 2022 Investigations Guide and by Global Investigations Review as an international top 40 under 40 for investigations. And as I've given you a mouthful and a lot of words on all of this, in all of my discussions with Anne about substance and just generally ethics and compliance, she is one of those really good kinds of outside counsel. She both provides helpful legal analysis and at the same time understands and balances reality that we as in-house people deal with every day. So now that I've talked about you, Anne, thank you for being here. Can, can, we, can you tell us a little bit about how you're, you got into compliance in your practice area? Lisa, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I've really been looking forward to doing this for a while. So thank you. And I'm glad the timing finally worked out. Um, The way that I got into investigations and compliance was really a lot of chance, luck, um, and a little bit of bad timing. So when I was a second year associate doing general corporate work, M&A financing is the usual um, in that realm. My husband got a job uh, in DC that we didn't want to turn down. So I went on the job market and I joke that we have a pretty equitable relationship. So I've told him he got one move and I get the next one, which means we're not going anywhere. Um, But I uh, was basically in a panic and I posted my resume on LinkedIn and I was trying to get a job um, in DC because we had been based in Boston for a few years and a recruiter called me out of the blue. um, And I, you know, I usually ignore those calls as many of us do, but this one I picked up and she said, that Miller and Chevalier was looking for a Russian-speaking junior associate for their international group who could be focused on FCPA investigations. And so I applied to the job with a lot of interest and very little experience. And I absolutely love the work and the people, but the thing that won me over at the beginning um, was that I actually was offered the job when I was five months pregnant with my second child. And the firm didn't know, but I wanted to make sure to tell them before accepting the offer so that I knew what would happen in terms of maternity leave benefits. um, And if it was even a place where I wanted to work after sharing that kind of news in response to a job offer. Um, So anyway, I was so nervous telling them and my recruiter was nervous and probably a bit annoyed as well. But I called Kate Atkinson, who was then the head of the international department and is now chair of the firm. And I'm sure my voice was shaking and I'm sure I apologized for having a baby, even though no one should apologize for having a baby. Um, Anyway, Kate replied in exactly the way you would want from a leader and a role model and an employer 
with a congratulations and describing the firm's generous maternity leave policy, which they were going to extend to me, even though they absolutely didn't need to. Um, and so that is how I started in FCPA investigations. And, and Anne, I just um, wanted to, to say with that, I think that that's really fantastic is shocking. No one, our audience is very strongly excuse female. Um, yeah. And it really is a thing where, you know, I think it's a, a really good statement from coming from a, you know, a corporate law firm that not only was the reaction so positive, but it made, was probably a way that, you know, ultimately brought you to feel really a part of the firm much earlier than you may have otherwise. Absolutely. It completely won my loyalty. And it, I just, you know, started with such a positive impression of the firm. And I, it made me feel like I could have a very long career there that wasn't a place that just churned out associates until they burned out. Um, so then, you, was that the beginning of your investigation's life? What happened next? <laughs> yeah, that really was. Um, I worked on investigations including that one that needed the Russian language skills for a few years, but it quickly came to understand that investigations and compliance really go hand in hand. And in order to properly understand issues and advise clients, you have to understand how a company functions on the inside. You have to understand its processes, its decision-making and approval structure, and be able to do a true root cause analysis. Because without that, investigations are really just a game of whack-a-mole with no real resolution of the underlying weaknesses that could exist in a compliance program. And so I ended up basically splitting my time between investigations and compliance and learning both sides of that and getting involved um, in monitorships, as you mentioned. So, I mean, you've talked a little bit right now about Eastern Europe and as you're a native Russian speaker. So let me just go on to that. You started in there, but right now is a really unique time. Um, what do you see going on? The biggest questions from clients in, in that region in terms of, of, of ethics and compliance? Yeah, it's certainly an interesting time. Um, most questions right now are really related to sanctions and sanctions compliance. Sanctions obviously have exploded since Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the end of February and have been expanding rapidly ever since. So companies are trying to ensure that they comply with existing sanctions, U.S. sanctions, EU sanctions, some Russian sanctions and other countries. Um, and they're trying to anticipate future ones so that they can be prepared or they're just making the decision to de-risk completely or stop operations in Russia and are seeking advice on how to do that without violating sanctions. Um, one of the sanctions is that you can't engage in new investment in Russia. And so there's a lot of questions of, well, you know, what exactly can we do and how can we stop our operations uh, in a way that doesn't put us in breach of anything? Yeah, and from an in-house side, we, you know, we work in learning and education technology. There are people who may be using certain products from us who are not. The sanctions are very important, but there's also this very human aspect um, of people, for example, who may be wanting to take tests for their future education or for doing online courses. And how do you handle that now and going forward, like you said, to avoid both being in breach and to deal with, with risks? I mean, no one would be surprised. I mean, you know, it's at our website, you know, discussion too. This is a, it's a really hard question. And I think it's a different, slightly different um, context for that. Um, but after that, I think we should talk a little bit more, especially because you have so much experience um, on something that is a little less 
in, in Eastern, you know, you're, you're Eastern European specific, but kind of the world as a whole and some of the um, sexual harassment, discrimination type investigations and issues. I think it's always hard in-house sometimes. You have different parts of the organization working on different things. But if you can talk about um, this uh, di discrimination, even with the DEI, it's a, as a compliance issue. And I know we both could talk about Activision for hours. Yeah, I can talk about Activision for hours and really any compliance topic. But I think what Activision and some of the other cases recently have highlighted for companies is that sexual harassment and discrimination issues are becoming um, not just a greater litigation risk, but also an area where compliance should be focused and maybe hasn't been focused in the past. So this could be um, an enlargement of the compliance scope. But it's a, it's a really interesting topic because... First of all, I think we have a lot of framework already to tackle harassment and discrimination from the compliance standpoint. So, for example, all of the guidance from um, DOJ and other agencies um, that basically provide a framework for what a good compliance program looks like, that can be applied to the harassment and discrimination topic. So, for example, you can do a risk assessment on harassment and discrimination. You can engage internal audit. You can do monitoring and testing. You can review data on the sorts of allegations and complaints that are coming into your hotline and figure out where the risk areas are and how you can manage them as compliance. And it's also an interdisciplinary um, topic, right? Because compliance is going to need to work with HR and management. And if you want to affect cultural change, you have to bring in all of those different organizations within the company and um, really set about to do good messaging that can trickle down to all of the employees. And I think also one question I have about that is from a resourcing or an in-house standpoint, like, like I was saying a minute ago, and you said we definitely all have to get out of our silos more and collaborate and work on these things if we're in a silo. But one of the challenges is, how do you then, if you're in an organization that looks at that as a traditionally an HR view or HR employment, legal and employment issue, to pull that into what we, we do in ethics and compliance without looking like we're trying to take over everything with scope creep? You know, how, how do you think we can handle that or just thoughts on the topic? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it's actually one of those areas that can probably stay mostly under HR or be tweaked depending on the particular nuances of the company, it doesn't have to just shift over to be under legal or under compliance. Um, there's a lot of compliance resources and tools that HR can use in order to do a lot of the work that needs to be done itself. And then compliance can take on really a monitoring role, kind of working with HR, reviewing the data, the information, um, helping HR to figure out whether what they're doing is being effective and reaching people and just becoming a resource to HR. Yeah, no, I think that that makes, that makes sense. Um, I especially think, you know, I think especially in light of Activision and Blizzard and to this day, every time I see something new that comes out about that, it just amazes me more and more. And I think it, it, it I mean, you know, when it comes back to that, I mean, just the ongoing behaviors just seem more and more remarkable to me by now. I mean, what, what to you has been like the most striking thing about that, you know, kind of as it's gone on and on? It's exactly what you said, the ongoing behaviors. I, I'm always surprised at how long things go on before someone does something meaningful to stop them. 
Um, and it's interesting because oftentimes like there will be a particular wrongdoer, right? Like a serial harasser, right? Who then is terminated, leaves the company for whatever reason. And they're kind of out of the picture. And there will be a group of people who says, okay, the problem has been solved. Yeah. And the problem has not been solved because if this was able to go on for three years, five years, however long, right? You, you have a problem um, that still needs to be addressed and addressed head on in order to make sure that there aren't general controls, weaknesses in the company, cultural weaknesses, um, reporting weaknesses that somebody else can't just take advantage of to do the same thing or something else that's wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's not, this is not just limited to harassment type issues. There are things all the time. And then, you know, the other part people will, you will say, or is, you know, this person, yeah, we've solved the problems, first of all. But second of all, um, the person who made the allegations was wrong. Or if somebody loses a job, you have people who think, well, the person who said something didn't understand that it was all a joke or it's, you know, the, the root causes don't change. Um, you know, if one person gets around a, an ABC policy, other people are going to figure it out too. I mean, you do you do have to punish wrongdoers if they actually knew what they were doing. But I think it's a real challenge also when you do. I've, I've rarely seen situations where someone has zero fans in the entire company. Absolutely, and not everybody leaves when the wrongdoer leaves. So you have to change the culture that's left. Right. I mean, change the culture and also, you know, move it, you know, make it evolve. And also there are some people that may become part of the culture that then once they realize a different way, become the biggest advocates of doing the right thing too. That's always, I always get kind of excited about the people who are actually converted. Um, yeah. Those are the best stories. Yeah, I know. People that will reach out to me because something went wrong and they like, I never realized this was a problem and it was genuine. And now over the last couple of years, you hear back, they're like, I just was a little concerned about X, Y, or Z. And even though most of those things they don't need to worry about, it just says, look, we built trust that you'd rather do it this way than what was in the past. It's, it, it's I mean, it's constant and all these other things. Um, so with, with that, we've been talking about these, but it was sexual harassment, but it, it really does then relate back to, to um, diversity. And I know you've spoken about the NASDAQ diversity rule. And then in the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, I can never remember exactly what the words stand for, but has, has had a lot, some statements over the last couple of years about diversity being a regulatory issue. We talked about it as a programmatic issue. What about as a, a regulatory one? Yeah, that's a great topic, um, one that interests me a lot. So I'm often wary of overregulation because I think it ends up being an excuse or setting the ceiling when it means to set the floor. So, you know, you could say, right, we meet the regulatory standards. And that isn't really what anybody should be just striving for on the issue of diversity, right? Like, we want to have diversity to the extent that it possible because it enriches the company and enriches the culture and not just, uh, oh, well, we have two diverse board members because that's what we have to have. Um, but I think the NASDAQ rule and what's come out from the FCA, it doesn't create necessarily those problems because what they're regulating is the disclosure of diversity rather than actual diversity um, metrics. So that I think is good. We should know how diverse companies are. Um, shareholders should know that. Employees should know that. That's great information to get out into the market. One thing that I um, was reading from the FCA actually was they reported on research that found 
that greater gender diversity improves risk management culture and decreases the frequency of misconduct fines. They said it in the context of European banks, but I'm sure it's true in many other industries as well. And from that perspective, that's just a great statement for a regulatory agency to be making, that they, they, from their perspective, are also valuing diversity, right? And they have set their own goals for how diverse the FCA leadership should be. And they're being pretty transparent about the fact that they missed their goals for 2020, but they're aiming at further goals in the next few years. Yeah. One thing that um, I really also liked about that, the transparency, the tie about it was focusing on leadership within the, what they're putting out there. It isn't, as an organization, these are our goals. It's from a leadership standpoint um, and bringing in a very deep pop culture moment of the last couple of weeks as I did watch that Abercrombie and Fitch documentary as a little before, I was more in the Benetton generation. But with that said, one of the parts that I just reminded me of even how things you don't think will relate may eventually relate is they were showing, they're showing about where Abercrombie is now in terms of increasing diversity within its population as a whole. And then as you look at it and it's, you know, kind of when it comes to more, you know, senior uh, management and higher, more senior roles in the company, it becomes much less diverse. And we see that in a lot of places, but I, I, it made me start thinking again about, well, that's what the next step is. So I like, you know, to relate back to compliance, you know, if, if you are weeding people out earlier on and somehow you're not diverse, you're missing risks. Um, yeah. That, so you have to look at the pipeline and the leadership to make sure as well that if leaders exit for various reasons, that there are others who are getting prepared to take those places as well. Especially, I, I agree. I think it's a risk. It's a huge risk issue. Um, and, the, the group I, I always mention whenever I can is the, the NABCRUMP in particular globally, which is for uh, Black Risk Compliance and Management Professionals. And their founder has had the point that I just stick to all the time. If, if you don't have the diverse table talking about the risks, that's a risk in itself because you're, you've got, you don't have anything that's diversity in any way, shape or form. Yeah, so. couldn't agree more. So with that, I mean, one of the other things that's interesting about your career is you are one of the few people I think we've spoken to that in the podcast that really has a pretty much exclusively law firm practice, though you have done several secondments, I know, over time. So you've been in-house as well. Um, So I just wanted to get your viewpoints as a woman who is a partner in a law firm, chairs part of a practice, and started out in that, um, you know, some, your viewpoint on either advice or things you wished you knew, just because I think, you know, there are people who really look at this and think, I want to be a partner in one of these kinds of firms, and this is my goal. And what could you say to help someone in that position? I wish someone had told me not to worry so much about everything. Um, when I was really junior in my career, I felt a lot of pressure to stay on the quote unquote path at all costs. And it was a completely self-inflicted pressure, but it was based on these horror stories I had heard from other women who had stepped away or stepped back for whatever reasons from their careers and how hard it was for them to get back into the thick of things or to get the jobs that they wanted afterwards. And so I told myself that I was going to just power through everything. And although it worked out for me and I love my career and my family and everything. It, it, it wasn't a healthy attitude and it wasn't a good way to go about um, building my career. And so looking back, I really wish that I hadn't worried so much about that. And I hope that other women can make choices that work for them at a particular time and not necessarily have to worry about 
terrible consequences that could happen down the road. And also that, you know, employers get better about understanding that people might make different choices at different parts of their life for various reasons. And that those don't negatively impact their ability to do a job in the future. And in fact, can enrich those women and those people in general um, with various skill sets that they pick up along the way. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I started my career in a law firm and I really, there are a lot of great things about it, but it, it, it can be very hard that, you know, because your clients are paying a significant amount of money to be helping as a client in a crisis or, you know, things they can't do on their own. And I can understand where that can become m- much more of a worry and probably something that, you know, you'll, you'll see a lot. Um, how did you get to a point yourself to make it a little bit, to, to sort of filter out when you needed to worry and when you could kind of let that go and, you know, prioritize, you know, wh- how did you get to that point? I think it was a very gradual transition. I wish there had been just like a moment when I realized that I should prioritize better, um, but I didn't have a watershed moment like that. It was just, I was tired all the time. I was annoyed. Um, and I, I didn't want to be like that. So I slowly started weeding out. I don't have to say yes to absolutely everything. I need to start focusing, doing what's important for me, important for my career, um, from a job perspective. And then, um, you know, started narrowing in on what exactly I wanted to do and what specialties I wanted to have. And yeah, I mean, even with your time zone, sometimes you probably have still have to adjust to weird hours. I think we all do now. Um, But I think it's, I mean, I think it's really important to think about that. And I think for women in particular, whether you do have a family or you don't, or the fact that I think all uh, women generally will, you know, worry, worry a little bit more earlier in their careers. I mean, I found for me where I became better at prioritizing is that the more projects eventually over time people want in my opinion or I had to work on that I didn't know as much about at the beginning, I realized at a certain point, I was like, okay, I might not be the expert in X, but I've thought through enough business problems that at least I can get through this meeting and what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. And calling in the experts in emergencies. So, yeah. So, well, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else, you know, you would want to share about, you know, your, your practice or also about, you know, anything else that you, other advice you'd give to your younger self? I think the only other advice I would give to my younger self or anybody else is that whatever you do, you should make sure that you really love it because that, that's incredibly important for doing a good job, but also for your life and your peace of mind. So do the job that you enjoy. Yeah. I don't believe when people say, if you love your job, you won't work a day in your life because a job is still work. I mean, I've heard that from people, but on the other hand, I think what you say is right. You really have to enjoy it and be energized and love it, what you do every day, because we spend a lot of time with it. And with that, thank you for doing that. And thank you for everything you've done for um, women in this community and for being one of the first people I met in compliance. I remember when I met you in Prague, I think it was years ago, it was either Prague or Frankfurt, but it was, you know, sort of a start of a path and a friendship. So on behalf of Mary and me and the Compliance Podcast Network, and thank you so much for your time. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's such an honor to be part of this community. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.